Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 223 being recorded on Thursday, June 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, I know you have been doing nonstop 12-hour-a-day Zooms um, to help your clients understand the impact of COVID. Um, and we thought that uh, since most of our listeners are kind of now in what I would call a de-thawing state, so their their uh, local environments are hopefully opening up and they're getting back to a little bit of a uh, normalcy, if you will. Um, I'm excited to report I've had a haircut. That was, that was very delightful. Um, we thought it'd be a good idea to start looking at the pandemic and what it's going to mean for retail and e-commerce. Um, and we're fortunate enough to have uh, you as the co-host on this show because this has become an area of expertise with you because you've probably literally talked to hundreds uh, of folks about it. Um, so I'll point out that your clients pay somewhere around a bazillion dollars for this. So uh, again, our listeners get this information for free, which is great. But if you're if you're a client of Jason, still pay the bazillion so you can keep the podcast going. Um, and as I'm a couch economist and avid CNBC watcher, so I'm kind of excited to hear where you land on the shape of the recovery. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, so this show, we're skipping news and this is going to be a deep dive. And the title is Deep Dive Post-Pandemic Impact on Retail. So with that set up, I'll turn it over to you, Jason. Wow. Scott, that was a, a, like, I feel like I was supposed to have the announcer voice of us. So that's impressive. You know, it. uh, it's taken 223 episodes. Yeah. Um, I think most listeners are clear that you can pretty much do all of my roles. Like you've said, you've stole happy commercing before. Now you've stole my like fake radio voice. Um, and like, just to remind any listeners that don't know us well, I talk all day long about COVID's impact on businesses. Um, you actually run businesses that have been impacted by COVID. So I feel like there's uh, a pretty valid perspective there as well. So, yeah, I'm a little bit country. You're a little bit rock and roll. Exactly. And I'm regretting that we didn't make this a live video show because we both got haircuts and we're looking good. I feel like we were camera ready. Yeah. Yeah. Next time. Yeah. Uh, something to, uh, that's what we call a teaser in the biz for the, for the audience at home. Uh, look for that next video show to see that Jason and, and Scott's new dudes. Um, so jumping into the deep dive, uh, I'll, I'll give away the plot in the, the first minute of the show. Um, my perspective, like, uh, that's really formed from talking with o over 100 clients, uh, retailers and brands about the various impacts they're seeing and expecting to see from this is that COVID really isn't creating some dramatic new behaviors or fundamental changes to how people shop. What it's really doing is dramatically accelerating uh, trends and behaviors that we were already starting to see evolve. So I've kind of landed on this metaphor of a time machine. Um, and essentially, my premise is that COVID has pushed us five years forward in five minutes. And so what we're all dealing with now is ordinarily, we'd have a nice, uh, graceful ramp for all these changes. And now we're having to deal with the, the, the very abrupt version of them that we're getting. Uh, and so with that being said, uh, I, I like to break the impacts down into three big buckets. Uh, one bucket is customer behaviors that have changed um, as a result of shelter in place. So we'll talk about that first. Uh, the second bucket is the economic impacts of COVID and how that changes shopping behavior. So we can talk about that. Um, and the third big bucket is how the competitive landscapes for brands and retailers have changed and how that potentially impacts all this. And then tie it up in a nice little bow talking about how it's all going to end um, and how it might play out. And you and I can uh, debate our our, premise, our various premises about the shapes of the recovery. Yeah, we'll call that alphabet soup. I like it. Um, 
So let's start with the new behaviors. The first new behavior that we've seen as a result of COVID um, or acceleration of a trend that we were already seeing, uh, to me, is the most um, universal and most prominent, um, and that's the shift to digital um, that, you know, Fundamentally, we've seen uh, a way higher adoption rate of digital shopping experiences. So in categories that were already well penetrated, we saw the, the percentage of penetration go up. In categories that were not very well penetrated, like grocery, we've seen uh, like significant penetration. And we've seen uh, a lot of new customers come into the digital ecosystem. So a couple data points to kind of make this real for people. Like if you... Uh, Everybody has a slightly different definition of retail and therefore slightly different numbers. Um, Forrester would have said uh, pre-COVID, 16% of all, all retail um, was uh, e-commerce. Um, and based on their April data, 25% of all retail spending was e-commerce. So uh, before COVID ever hit, the forecast for that digital penetration would have had 25% penetration in about 2025. So five years from now. We saw it in April. Um, now, uh, totally open question whether that's permanent. Does that revert all the way back to 16% or does it uh, partially revert somewhere in the middle? Uh, I'll be curious to get your, your thoughts on that, Scott. But before we do that, I just a couple other similar data points. Uh, Bank of America, uh, their, their study, 16% digital penetration pre-COVID, 27% digital penetration in April. Um, uh, Brian Cornell, the CEO of, of Target, um, uh, uh, talked to the NRF uh, this morning. He said that he felt like it was COVID was accelerating digital adoption of their platforms by three years. Um, and uh, the one that I think is most interesting, Forrester has this really interesting uh, data set that they use called digitally influenced sales. And so what that is, is, hey, if 16% of, of sales are online, uh, there's another 37% of sales that happen at a cash register, but you used your mobile phone to decide what to buy. So you use Google Maps to find the store and the hours. You read reviews on uh, Amazon. You went to the manufacturer's website to read about the ingredients in the product. And so you add up the e-commerce sales and the digitally influenced sales. And pre-COVID, Forrester would have said 52% of all consumer spending was digitally influenced. And if you kind of run the numbers uh, uh, mid-COVID where we are now, that would be 70%. So, so that's the kind of um, shift to the digital channel uh, that I'm seeing. And I guess, A, Scott, like, does that surprise you at all? And, and do you think it's likely permanent or what, what's your uh, forecast? Interesting. Um, so you're a fan of the Forrester data. I haven't looked at that. I saw a JP Morgan report and I've been trying to get the underlying data, um, but it it kind of, it was in the context of raising the price targets for a bunch of companies and essentially saying, hey, we thought the US was kind of on a track to 30% kind of, uh, you know, e-commerce penetration. Now we're going to raise that to 35 to 40. Um, so to your point, we've accelerated pretty dramatically through there. Um, and then, you know, they called out some categories. So like, obviously grocery has been like hugely impacted by this. And I think that's going to stick. Um, it is the big question, right? Is, you know, how far is the pendulum going to swing back? You know, and then this also ties into the shape of the recovery and what happens with the pandemic. If, if this thing's around for years, then that's going to drive it. If there's, you know, some kind of a, you know, either a treatment of some kind or, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A therapy uh, or a, yeah, a vaccine, a vaccine, yeah, a vaccine. Um, you know, then, then that could cause the pendulum to swing uh, a different way. So it, it makes it hard. I think I kind of try to put myself in the shoes of our listeners, you know, what, what do you plan for? I think you got a plan for, you know, how do you get your company to 30 to 40% and, if you don't get there, you have to have a plan for that. You kind of have to keep a leg in both worlds because it's hard to know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the phrase I have uttered more than any other phrase in the last two months is called scenario planning. Nice. Yeah. And that's basically it, right? Like, uh, like what are, what are we going to do uh, about these digital penetration numbers? We're going to do scenario planning and we're going <laughs> to, we're going to have a play for, for that, that uh, shift being permanent. We're going to have a play for partial regression and, you know, same story. What are we doing for holiday? Right. Are people going to 
travel and buy gifts? Are they going to send their kids out on Halloween? Like there are all kinds of unknowables right now. So scenario planning is a a, a big part of the mix. Uh, the thing I find most interesting is uh, I agree that all this stuff's accelerated, but what's actually decelerated? And I would argue, um, you know, apparel has just like taken it on the chin. And I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know hundred percent why, because I guess if you're sheltering in place, you don't need new clothes. Um, so I guess that's a factor, but does this indicate that maybe that category doesn't get as high online as we thought because people need to go out, see it, touch it, try it on. It's hard to separate out the, you know, the inability to get in a store from the being sheltered in place. So that, that one's one that felt like it went backwards um, and everything else accelerated. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's a tough one. So I might, ar- so I would argue that my premise that uh, COVID has accelerated all these trends um, is equally true for apparel, because I would say that there was a pretty significant trend before uh, COVID uh, that apparel sales was de- de- decelerating, um, and there there were a bunch of headwinds against apparel, right? And a couple of them. Uh, quality apparel is less expensive. Like there's all these stats that that most people have about uh, the same amount of clothes in their closet they always have, but they've had to invest significantly less in them than they did in 1990, for example. Um, the bifurcation of the economy is people have spent uh, more on healthcare and more on education. The category of consumer spending that's most gone down is apparel. Uh, so that has kind of worked against them. Nobody pre-COVID, everybody was going from two wardrobes, a work wardrobe and a casual to one work wardrobe. Um, and so that was hurting apparel. And pre-COVID, like if you go back to the 90s, there was this cadence that we were used to where tastemakers had this big fashion show in Paris and, and uh, it generated a buzz and they had the world's slowest supply chain that then took like nine months to make all the clothes and get them out in the market. And, and like the whole... The whole apparel industry was based on these global fashion trends that turned every season. Um, and increasingly, none of that happens anymore. People are way more likely to be influenced by their favorite uh, micro-influencer on Instagram than they are by the Paris Fashion Show. And the lead time from design to shelf is like six weeks for most apparel. And uh, there just were no global trends. And so a lot of the old timers in apparel were like, oh man, you know, we're just having a horrible low lull because there hasn't been a new trend in a while. And as soon as the new trend comes, as soon as skinny jeans come back, we're all going to make money again. And I used to say, bad news, there's not going to be a new trend ever again. What there are going to be is a thousand simultaneous trends that are each for, you know, a much smaller uh, allotment of demand. So all of that was, I would argue, was already happening to apparel. And then you put that, that, soup of badness in the time machine and fast forward it five years and uh apparel is more bad like i would argue malls is the same thing we we talked a lot about how they were decreasing in popularity covid's accelerated their decrease in popularity and it, yeah and then you put those two trends together and there's an awful lot of people that sell clothes in malls <laughs> and that's just not an awesome business right now yeah, the one interesting exception seems to be athleisure, specifically Lulu, um, Lululemon. So, um, you know, the, their stock is just kind of hitting a new high every day. So they seem to have been relatively immune and or enjoyed the acceleration factor in the fashion category. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that I think that's generally true. I think they've taken a hit in COVID as well, but I think they've largely been the winner in the in the the sort of apparel headwinds. Um, I would point out, like, so I am advising clients that while we should scenario plan for this, uh, that uh, it's a safe bet that a significant chunk of this digital penetration is permanent. Like, like I'm, I'm very confident it's not going to regress to pre-COVID levels. Um, the, the, like, the the couple of uh, points I think about are um, SARS in China in 2002, 2003 was very similar to COVID uh, now. Like a bunch, uh, five tier one cities in China had shelter in place orders in, two, in late 2002. Um, retail sales fell off a cliff. Um, and two companies, uh, Alibaba, launched a B2C e-commerce site after the shelter in place orders were put in place. So uh, Alibaba was a pure B2B company when SARS hit China. Um, and they pivoted to B2C or C2C 
um, when uh, 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 SARS impacted them. And in the same way, JD.com was a brick-and-mortar retailer that was selling CD-ROM drives out of bazaars and had no e-commerce sales. And they started selling their inventory on WeChat um, once SARS kicked in. And, you know, just two years later, Alibaba sold $1.5 billion B2C, right? Like China rapidly adopted e-commerce because of SARS and never looked back. Like before COVID, China was at 38% e-commerce penetration. Um, And so in some ways... The same thing is playing out now, um, and particularly in new categories, like you mentioned grocery, pretty underpenetrated before COVID, like depending on how you count, maybe three or 4% of US sales were digital. Um, it's, again, depending on how you count, 11 to 14% right now. Uh, but what's most interesting is the majority of those customers are first-time digital grocery shoppers. They tried it for the first time because of COVID, and so... The you know they've they've uh, onboarded to the new, these new skills and new experiences, um, and it's a good bet that a uh, a big chunk of that will stick. The counter argument, Scott, though, is um, that nobody was in a position to plan for all this demand, so we all like are delivering the absolute worst digital experience we've ever delivered. Like websites are falling down, delivery windows suck, service levels suck, um, shipping accuracy sucks. And so there's a little bit of like, uh, hey, whatever percentage of customers you would have, you know, uh, got to become permanent new customers in in normal times, the percentage is likely to be lower now just because the 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 experience is is suboptimal. Yeah. So does that are you arguing that maybe those bad experiences actually make it not stick Uh, for some? So I, I think that that reduces the the amount of grocery that will stick. I still think grocery is going to dramatically stay forward. So if it if it went 4%, if it peaked at 14%, it might revert back to 7 or 8%, um partly because of those experiences, but then I could tell you those grocers are going to uh having met those customers and collected data on those customers, they're now going to market the heck out of try us again when we have a better uh, service level and better experiences. And uh, another phenomenon, because digital is so much more significant, and at the same time, digital grew and became way more significant, brick and mortar had this huge temporary lull as most retail had to shut down. So so digital temporarily became a way bigger percentage of the total sales for a bunch of brands and retailers. And guess what they all did? They all got more serious about digital, right? Like the the joke in our industry is, you know, the VP of e-commerce at any brand uh, got like hired and was, you know, heavily recruited by the CEO and told how important their role would be and how they'd, you know, have a um, a seat at the table for all the future decisions in that brand. And in most cases, that first day of work was the last time that the VP of e-commerce ever saw the CEO because, <laughs> you know, things went back to normal. And now all these VPs of e-commerce are telling me that the CEO is literally sitting in their office all day. Um and so what does happen then is you start investing in digital, you start, you know, doing more things. And it, it, it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit as, as uh, it, it gets more awareness from more stakeholders at all these businesses uh, it, that, that facilitates it sticking. Yeah. One, um, one observation, and I think we're a little bit ahead of you guys. So we're in North Carolina and you're in Chicago. Yeah. Um, you're ahead so of us in most things. And, and opening up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the retail experiences have taken a huge step backwards. So, you know, uh, my wife needed something for, from container store, uh, went to the store. There's a line to get in because they're, they're severely limiting the number of people that can go in there. And then when you go in the, the workers in the store, the store is understaffed, um, which I'll put a little asterisk on. And then they're having to do curbside pickup and help people in the store. And they've, they've been doing curbside pickup for three months. So they're favoring that over the people in the store. So the store experience, you know, yes, we're not having great digital experiences, but the store experience is like 30%, even worse than it kind of was before. Um, so then my wife had to get something else and she just did online curb pickup and it was actually, you know, it had, had, you know, she was able to get her item and cut the line essentially. It, it's almost like mobile yeah. ordering at Starbucks right now where you didn't have that dichotomy before at most places. The, the online experience was dramatically worse than the in-store experience. It seems to have flipped. It's anecdotal at this point. Um, the asterisk on hiring is we're in this really weird environment and we're 
we're really struggling with this at my company, Spiffy, that we can't hire people. So unemployment's crazy, but no one will come to work uh, in this kind of, you know, we, we have what I would call that kind of hourly retail type employee at Spiffy okay. that are our technicians. Um, they're making twice as much on unemployment than they are uh, in jobs. So there's, there's, you know, they're making a smart economic decision to, to, you know, continue yeah. to take care of that. So it's going to be interesting. I think through July, you're going to have these really bad retail experiences. So online, you know, I, I think we'll, you'll see it, you know, at least continue and, and through July. Yeah. To yeah. have a better customer experience. Yeah. I think there's a lot of aspects to that, that labor thing. Uh, a, I'll, uh, um, a bunch of retailers have discovered the loophole in the tax code on that problem. Uh, so it's bring back employees under a job share. And so under a job share, you the employee gets less hours, you pay the uh, employee you know, for less hours, um, but they're still eligible for um, a prorated portion of their state's unemployment, um, but they're eligible for 100% of the federal subsidy on unemployment. When you say job share, just part time, not full time. Is that what you're uh, yeah, but there, I, there's some, and I, I'm not advocating this. I'm not a tax advisor, <laughs> um, and I don't completely. Jason guarantees this will work. Understand it, uh, but there's something specific about the stat, and this is the loophole that I imagine will get closed, uh, or it won't matter because the program will end in July. But um, there's something special, like if if you just cut back someone's hours, then everything gets prorated. But if you Change, there's some formal status of a job share where two people are sharing a full-time job um, that that continues to make them eligible for this federal benefit. Uh, that, I'm going to uh, yeah. leave the podcast and go look into that right now. Yeah, Bye. look into that, and then we'll start the recording again when you come back. Um, welcome back, Scott. Uh, so Get Spiffy just got a bunch more employees. It's amazing. Um, we just implemented a job sharing program. I like it. Congratulations. Uh, I, people get value when they pay the bazillions of dollars. That's all I'm saying. Um, that aside, uh, you're seeing everything. Like Walmart is uh, shifting stores to self-checkout only, which would obviously have a substantial impact on the labor required to run a Walmart store. Uh, Target just permanently raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour to try to get more employees. Like there are all these interesting um second tier uh uh effect because of the labor issue so you're you're absolutely right to point that out um i want to pivot though so the digital is a huge deal it's it's top of mind for most of my clients when they're talking about the the systemic changes as a result of covid you know is is this shift to the digital channel and what the ramifications are um for a lot of brands it means man we should be investing more in digital marketing, right? And so I, I, I think you you uh, pointed to a L'Oreal article that came out this week, and and they talked about how we went from fifty percent of our spend on digital to eighty percent of our spend, and got a great ROI because of uh, that's now where the consumer is. That's the front door of the brand experience. Um, but I, uh, speaking of brand, I want to pivot to the second trend, which is a little bit of a Debbie Downer for a lot of my clients. Uh, we're seeing customers have a lot less brand loyalty um, during this pandemic. Um, and so that manifests itself in a couple of ways. Um, one way is, uh, as we'll talk about later in the in the show, uh, we're, we're in a deep recession and, and in a recession, people tend to trade down and be less brand loyal. Um, but unique to COVID or shelter in place, customers have had all these forced product substitutions like you you sent your shopping list to whole foods um and they sent back um you know they they made a bunch of substitutions um and in previous times you might not have been happy with those substitutions you might not have even accepted them uh but during covid you're mostly like just thrilled to get any brand of toilet paper for example right so you you ordered charmin and you got amazon presto toilet paper and you're you just keep the the toilet paper and you're thrilled to get it and there's some evidence that when people are forced to try all these brands that they didn't intend to buy, that 20% of them stick with the new brand. Um, so, so we're seeing, you know, uh, brands have to be more worried as customers get uh, uh, a little more promiscuous. I personally have been tracking um, some of the funny substitutions that have happened. Uh, and so I have like all these examples of someone ordering uh like cottage cheese and getting Christmas ornaments or ordering peanut butter and getting glue sticks. But my all time favorite substitution is Tesco in the UK. 
uh, a customer ordered baby wipes and they got a bottle of Bell's whiskey. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. I feel like I would order baby wipes all the time if I knew that was a possibility. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a win. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but here's the interesting thing about that brand promiscuity. Uh, at the same time, people are more open to shifting brands. People are also flocking back to established traditional comfort brands, uh, in a way that we haven't seen in a long time, right? So pre-COVID, the big trend in food was, I want only natural food, I want organic, I don't want any dyes in it. Um, and, and uh, you know, cleaning products, for example, something I think you know well, like everyone only wanted the, the organic cleaning products with no quote-unquote chemicals. Um, and I always put the quotes in there because I'm pretty sure water is a chemical. Um, the now that we're in COVID, everyone only wants Clorox, right? And in fact, like Marriott and United Airlines have brand partnerships with Clorox. Um, and everybody wants Kraft mac and cheese and Campbell's soup. Um, and like they're all drinking beer and they're drinking dad beers. They're drinking like Coors and, and Miller and like all of these traditional comfort brands. So it's been an interesting resurgence for a lot of those brands. Hmm. Um, so the third behavior, um, that we're seeing that's kind of interesting is this phenomenon I call pantry stocking. Um, and, uh, uh, a couple of people on the internet misheard me and had memes about panty stocking, which is a whole different thing. Um, the, but, uh, pantry stocking, like the, the most visible version of this is like everyone rushed out and bought a year's supply of toilet paper early in the pandemic. Um, and that like, you know, superficially, you're like, oh, man, I'll bet you that Procter & Gamble is thrilled to sell all that that extra toilet paper. And the reality is that was kind of a bummer for them, right? Because they they sold a year's supply in Q1. Um, customers aren't using toilet paper at any significantly greater rate. Um, and so they're going to their comps for the rest of the year are going to suck. And they sold that, you know, toilet paper in a, a high cost, low margin environment um, that, you know, there's uh, they didn't create any new demand. They just like pulled their demand forward. Um, and so there were a lot of products like that. But as the pandemic has played on, we've seen um, a related phenomenon. Like people are buying a lot of shelf-stable food items. So the, the like fastest growing um, sales item at the grocery store are like dried pasta, uh, canned foods, evaporated milk, tomato sauces, um, and they're buying those things in substantial multiples of what they used to buy. And almost across the board in every product category, people are shifting to bigger pack sizes. So they're, you know, they used to buy 12 packs of, of, of soda. Now they're buying cases of soda, like all, all of those sorts of things. Um, and so it's created this this whole new phenomenon. Um, you know, you the big packs didn't sell that well in grocery stores before. And so, you know, now everybody's having to change their supply chain to carry more of the big packs. When they put the big packs on the shelf, they have less room for other products. So, so uh, retailers are actually having fewer product facings as they lean into these big packs. And the most, the funny, most interesting thing is once a customer fills their pantry with Kraft mac and cheese, you now have to run new marketing campaigns to get people to consume the mac and cheese so that they'll uh, trigger a replenishment event, right? So uh, suddenly you have a lot of brands like leaning into... Uh, teaching you other recipes and other uses for the products you pantry sh stock. And so my premise is I keep pitching this to the the toilet paper brands. No one's taken me up on it yet, but I think we should really be running a Halloween campaign where we encourage kids to toilet paper their neighbor's houses. Yeah, or dress as the mummy. Oh, yeah, that would work too. That's a good one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. Um, and it's, it's or a Taco Bell tie-in. Yeah. Uh, but it has become a thing across every category. Chewy had their earnings call uh, earlier this week, and and they literally cited in their earnings the the amount of revenue, which was ninety million dollars that they they attributed to pantry stocking. And they went on record as saying they don't expect that to abate. So they they think that's a perm that this new pantry stocking is going to be a permanent behavior, and the customers aren't going to revert back to the smaller bags of of dog food, for example. I don't. They. I'm, I'm not sure they cited any specific evidence for that but that was an interesting pov what have you guys been pantry stocking uh yeah well um yeah so we 
I think our rapid uh, over pantry stalkers just anyway, and we live in a condo, so arguably, like we we don't have the luxury of space for all all of those things. Uh, But by far the most important pantry stocking item in my household is uh, jugs of Starbucks iced coffee. What about (laughs) yourself? This is funny. There's a. The guy that started Barstool Sports is doing day trading now. His name's uh, Dave Portnoy, and he does this thing called Davy Day Trading Global DDTG. And, and he, so when the stock market opens, he does a live stream, and he's always like, "I've had fifteen coffee, and it's like nine a.m." <laughs> it always reminds me of you. I like it. Or by the time first time I've seen you, you've already. 20 coffees. Uh, so you're, you're the only person I know that could give him a run for his money on his coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I was really stockpiling the coffee over here. Yeah. You know? The uh, ramen ramen is very popular with my crew. Yeah. Uh, and are you consuming any of that or did you just put it in the, in the stock, the pantry and call it a day? We have last I looked, we've, we've been chewing through it pretty good. Okay, cool. Uh, so the, Fourth behavior um, is a, a broad category I call nesting. And this is all the things we've learned to do for ourselves for the first time because we're at home. So it turns out a lot of people didn't know how to cook and have developed cooking skills um, as a result of COVID. Um, uh, you know, people belong to gyms. Now they bought Pelotons. Um, people like used to go to a salon to get their nails done. Now they've learned how to do their own manicures or pedicures and things like that. Um, and in many cases, uh, and we all used to work in an office, and now we've all learned to work at home. Um, and in many cases, we made capital investments to support those new habits, right? So a lot of people stopped at Best Buy on their way home from work on the last day and bought a monitor for their home office, and they ordered a comfy office chair. Um, employers had to buy Zoom accounts for everyone and VPN accounts for everyone. And so, you know, once all the health risks from COVID have abated and it's safe for everyone to go back to work and there's no more, you know, um, barriers. The hypothesis is fewer people will go back to work. I mean, a lot of people go back to work, but we won't revert to the same level of office work because some people have learned that they can work from home and will just like it better. And other people will have capital investments that they'll want to leverage. So they'll, they'll work from home more occasionally. Um, and all of those behaviors uh, have, create huge winners and losers in the retail economy, right? So if people drive to work less, um, the McDonald's and Starbucks take a huge hit when they don't stop for breakfast and the gas stations take a huge hit when they don't use as much gas and the convenience stores take a huge hit because you you go to convenience stores when you stop for gas. So like all these economies shift, uh, you know, Peloton wins, the gym loses uh, based on these new behaviors we're learning. Um, and the the grocery stores, for example, have a huge vested interest. You used to get 40% of your calories from restaurants and 60% from grocery stores. Right now, you're getting 90 plus percent of your calories from grocery stores. They desperately want to lock in as big a percentage as they can. So they, they know they're not going to get 90, but they're running all kinds of campaigns to keep it at 70, for example, and remind people to to use those new cooking skills they acquired. So, so lots of... Um, uh, micro battles in the nesting space have you learned any new uh, skills since you've been at home scott um no yeah <laughs> uh i kind of wonder how sticky this is going to be though because everyone talks a good game but then what happens in the office environments is you know so my my forte is like a software as a service kind of company um and what's happened is the the telesales group is yeah. wildly inefficient working from home and the sales team. So then you have this desire to get the sales team back to work. But then now, now you're in this kind of, when everyone's remote, it works. But then when you have one set of people at the office and the other aren't, then like whenever you need to meet with like someone in legal, you have to do a zoom meeting, which is kind of strange. Um, it, I, I, I talked myself into, I think like 5% is going to stick. Um, but then, you know, if you read any of the Silicon Valley stuff, everyone's getting rid of every office and they're never going to use offices again. So it's going to be interesting to see um, where we land on that. Do you have a, yeah. so I'll, 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 I'll plan a flag at 95% where we revert to kind of our old behaviors. How, how about you? Um, so the work from home one, I think is the toughest to predict. And I, uh, I, I agree more people will go back than are necessarily expecting to right now. I think it, 
it might be a lower percentage than 95. And I don't mean, because I don't think it's binary. I don't think you exclusively work in an office or exclusively work at home. I think there might be a lot more people that go to the office four days a week and one day at home now that they've learned that they can be semi-productive at home. Um, but, uh, and I can certainly tell you in my industry, it's going to be funny. Like one of the biggest expenses in my industry is travel, right? So like, while there's all these negatives, like one thing I'm sure the CFO is thrilled at right now is the tiny, uh, amount of money he's paying to the airlines and hotel industries. Um, the, and so I think, you know, there's going to be some, some natural inclination to sort of continue the virtual work. Uh, in in this like agency model. But then here's what's going to happen over time. Uh, one agency will decide to travel to the client site for the pitch while all the other people pitch remote. Um, and when that agency wins, <laughs> every other agency is going to be like, oh, they had a slight advantage from the human interact, you know, and suddenly everyone's going to be back on planes and it's pretty, you know, it'll it'll eventually get back to the old level. So I, I sort of am with you on the work at home. Uh, I spent a lot of money on a gym and we bought a Peloton bike and like, we're not sure we're going to renew our gym membership. Right. I, I think stuff like that is going to be a lot more common. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the cooking one is another interesting one. Like what, like, you know, I, I think uh, the percentage of calories consumed at home is going to be permanently higher, but not anything like what we're seeing at the moment. Yeah. Um. So the, the fifth and final trend, uh, are all of these behaviors related to people's concern over uh, health, right? And so we're, we're seeing stores literally get designed differently. Like there are all these consumer sentiment studies, uh, just to throw some scary data out there. Um, 78% of women don't feel safe testing beauty pot products in a store anymore. So you probably aren't going to go to Sephora and try on lipstick. Um, and so all the cosmetic companies are leaning heavily into virtual uh, augmented reality try on. Right. And we uh, some news this week, uh, L'Oreal, which has this really advanced um, augmented reality um, cosmetic system called Modiface that they bought. Uh, they just deployed it on Amazon. Amazon let them put their code on Amazon to do these cosmetic trials because, um, you know, again, that's going to be the new way people are going to shop for cosmetics. 65% of people uh, don't feel safe trying clothes on in a dressing room right now. So that has significant ramifications. You know, you talked about some reasons why why apparel might um, uh, not be, uh, uh, might not adopt online as much. Like if people aren't going to be able to use dressing rooms and don't feel safe, uh, then that you know is a reason that you might see more online shopping, but also higher returns and things. Um, and 66% repeat, uh, percent of people don't feel safe working with a sales associate right and so you see more self-service experiences and we see these walmart stores testing um uh, stores with all self-checkout and walmart wasn't super high on self-checkout uh prior to to covid so that's interesting and then you have all these ex uh, experiences in the store that are going away like nobody's opening salad bars or uh, self-service hot food or bulk nuts in the store a really controversial one it is, you know, uh, that stores aren't doing sampling, right? So, you know, that's kind of a signature thing at Costco. Um, like, you know, will people want to go back and take a, a, a sample off of that tray and take their mask down to eat the food in the store, right? Like um, stuff like that. Uh, you and I have talked for years about contactless payment and how no one was really adopting in the U.S. Now contactless payment's blowing up. Uh, and in fact, like all the gas stations are adopting it because no one wants to touch the pump. Like full service gas may come back because people literally don't want to touch the the gas nozzle. Um, and we now have at least two different websites out there that are rating retailers based on their safety procedures. Um, and so is that, you know, is sort of trust and reputation in safety like a, you know, a new differentiator that that, you know, becomes part of the brand promise for some retailers? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how all that lands. Yeah. Are you, do you think that that like people are going to get over all that and, and uh, all those experiences will come back? I feel like South Carolina or North Carolina is a little more um, open than Chicago. So it seems like. Yeah, I would say that we have kind of a 50, 25, 25 thing here. We have kind of the bulk of people. So half the people are kind of following the rules. And if the store says it needs a mask, 
they're wearing it. Uh, otherwise, they're not driving around in their mask. Then we have a quarter of the people that are just disregarding everything. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a quarter of the people that are super fly freaked out and they're they're wearing a mask while driving alone in the car. Right. Um, so, you know, just to give you an idea of kind of the spectrum there. Um, so so I think I think you're going to have 30 to 40 percent cohort that is super tuned into this. Um, it, there's probably a high correlation to exposure to older folks or, you know, some kind of a, you know, compromised situation or, or they're just, you know, freaked out by it, um, which is fine. Yeah. So, so I think that that's going to be enough that, that it will be a factor. And I think it's going to stick for around for a long time. Uh, I, yeah. Um, and then usually at this point in the presentation, I've been totally uh, Debbie Downer and everyone's like really depressed and mad. So I usually sneak in a sixth trend that's not on the outline. Um, which is that every pet in America has been adopted while we're all at home. Um, and so I, I joke about that, but literally there's like the largest cohort of new pet owners in the history of the U.S. Uh, and Chewy in their earnings report talked about they got 1.6 million new customers this quarter. Um, and the interesting thing about all those new pet owners is they all learned how to get their dog food and their cat litter and their toys online, right? Like none of them, you know, drove to the pet store and went inside to get their stuff. So, so like it's a huge new cohort that was born digital. We talk about digitally native um, brands. Now we have these digital native uh, shoppers. Uh, so that concludes the longest and first section of, of uh, the my sort of uh, spiel, like the second section is is uh, about the recession. And um, uh, for those that don't know, we're, I think, now officially in a recession, and it very likely is the deepest recession since World War Two. Yep. Uh, and so you can, you know, there are all kinds of conversations about the the behaviors we typically see in a recession and what the learnings are from from uh, the last couple of recessions. Um Super high level, like it's it's not stuff that would surprise you. Like in a recession, people shift to more value oriented products. They trade down in brands. Uh, e commerce tends to go up in uh, in recessions. Ironically, one of the recessions is called the dot com bust, and yet e commerce grew all throughout the dot com bust as people uh, shopped online for better values in the recession. Uh, people kind of pivot their their spending from uh, wants to needs. Uh, you know, there's a huge credit crunch um, and that has a significant impact on a bunch of retailers. We saw Sephora this month, like roll out installment payments for cosmetics, which is sounds like a economically bad idea. Um, but, you know, uh, you're going to see retailers break out their layaway programs and uh, and all these non-traditional financing and things like that. Um, and I would remind listeners, we had Casey... Uh, Lohenbaugh from Deloitte on um, a couple months ago, and and he talked about like uh, a study that Deloitte had done, kind of looking at the last couple of recessions and saying, hey, you know that there's likely one coming, and I, you know, I don't think any of us knew then that it was coming a lot sooner than we expected. Um, so potentially, and uh, like the long term impact of COVID is mostly felt because of this this recession. Um. Like, does that, at something like Spiffy, would you guys think about, like, changing your packages to have more value-oriented packages as people are more cost-conscious? Or so, so having lived through 08 and 09, while the data says it's a worse recession from a GDP growth perspective, yep. like, the the macro stuff isn't tracking it, right? So um, unemployment is, but it's kind of weird unemployment. It's like, it doesn't, people aren't really... They're, they're, not, they're actually earning more being unemployed. So, so that's not impacting, you know, and we're, we're, we've pushed out like four plus trillion and another three or four behind it um, through PPP and all this stuff. So, um, you know, and at the same time, also the stock market's hitting new highs. So there's this really big disconnect that it's really hard to get a read on what's going on because there's been so many levers that have pulled. So it, it doesn't feel like a recession, right? Um, and then there was just some data out today that's really timely with this where retail sales, maybe maybe we save this. Do you want to save this for the how long it lasts? Sure. Or do you want, sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. Although you're like, so I would, I would certainly agree. Like there's no precedent for this recession. Like it is the deep, right? Like so 2001 bust, unemployment 6.3%. 
2008, Great Recession, 10% unemployment. 2020, depending on you know how you count, like we'll call it 15% unemployment. Um, I'll come back to your point about the unemployment in a second. In 2001, retail sales never went negative. Like they, the the rate of growth slowed, but it was always positive. In 2008, uh, uh, retail sales dipped three percent at worst, and and in 2020. We last month we had this, or, or April we had this like fifteen percent dip, unprecedented dip. Um, so you look yeah, at that. Yeah, but it's apples and oranges though, because well, that's yeah, that's the problem. So, so here's the problem. Like that's a stores really, were literally closed. Yeah. due to a pandemic. Yeah, you know? they were literally closed. And in any of those other recessions, like whatever the dip was, it slowly came back. Like we already know now from the the April data that the retail sales already came back, right? So it was the it was the the steep, it was a deep crevice, but very narrow. Um, and per your point on unemployment, uh, 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 is it Derek Thompson at the Atlantic? He wrote an awesome article called we are living in the weirdest economy ever. And his main point was, um, earnings in the United States of America are at an all time high because, uh, like, while there is that unemployment, like the stimulus checks that everyone got and the, the extra unemployment benefits, like re like like income for the average American like is is the highest month that we've seen on record and spending was at an all time low because all those stores were closed and they're like we've never seen that in the economy before like we have this huge huge spike in earnings and a huge drop in um in uh, spending and it was the highest savings savings rate we've ever seen uh, since we recorded it so so I hundred percent agree with you it's it's uh not really valid to use those other other uh, economic events as as uh, strong indicators here. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be be fascinating to see. Yeah, um, and then uh, briefly because I want to get to the how it ends stuff, but the the other impact here is um, that the landscape probably changes. There's clear winners and losers, right? So by category, there's winners and losers. If you were an online grocer in New York, i.e., Fresh Direct. Best thing that ever happened to you. If you were Disney Plus, uh, you couldn't have launched at a better time, right? But if you were Away Luggage or Marriott Hotels or Twenty Four Hour Fitness, it it was a you know a devastating blow to you. Um, and at the same time, it disproportionately advantaged the the largest, richest retailers and the retailers that are the biggest general merchants, right? So the, the way to think about this, if you were a specialty shoe store, if you were DSW shoes, you were not allowed to be open. You were non-essential. Um, but you were allowed to buy shoes at Walmart because Walmart was essential because of their groceries, right? So there was this huge um, shift of like $250 billion of spending um, that disproportionately went to uh, re- retailers that had a grocery component and uh, very large, well-capitalized retailers. At the other end of the spectrum, independent retailers, which is about 25% of all retail, um, had on average 19 days of cash on hand. So they've now ran 60 days with less than 10% of their usual revenue. Uh, they're totally financially insolvent, and a huge swath of them are likely to never open again. Um, and so we're just going to have uh, uh, have this this cataclysmic event where we're we're just going to see way less retail stores in the U.S. Um, than than uh, uh, next year than we had last year. Uh, and so a way that plays out is let's say twenty five percent of all the stores don't open. Uh, let's say you look at the grocery category. Pre COVID, Walmart, Kroger, and Albertsons represented forty percent of the grocery category. Um, when a bunch of independent retailers and some some uh, regional uh, grocers go out of business, um, the likely outcome is that Walmart, Kroger, and Albertsons represent sixty three percent of the grocery industry. Yeah, yeah. In a way, some of these policies kind of strengthened. Oh, it, market it, share. So, yeah. So, if Walmart's the only thing open and everything else is closed, I mean, like you're you're essentially putting coffin, you know, nails in the coffin of some of these small independents. It's it's going to be it's kind of, kind of sad. Yeah. Oh, it totally said. And then it's like insult to injury. Um, it's really hard to declare bankruptcy right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, like we haven't even seen <laughs> get it. Get in line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to get in line. Like the courts just open for the video bankruptcies. Your lawyers are, you know, extra pain. And 
usually, you know, you, usually you try to j- declare chapter 11, you try to raise some, um, some new lines of credit, liquidate a bunch of inventory and do a restructuring plan. Right now you can't liquidate any inventory. And so, you know, a bunch of people like Pier 1 that probably hope to restructure have had to throw in the towel and they're going to close all the stores. Uh, so that brings me to the last section, which is uh, if and how this all ends. And uh, I'm, I'm eager to hear your perspective, but I'll, I'll throw out just one important fact beforehand. Um, I, I like to talk about the fact that there are really two different endings. There's a psychological ending um, when our behavior uh, reverts to um, pre-pandemic levels of concern. And there's a medical end, right? Um, and the the Debbie Downer news is the medical outlook is not particularly awesome. Like the um, the the science is pretty clear that we're not going to be way safer from COVID uh, in January of 2021 than we were in March of of uh, 2020 when we shut down all this stuff. We'll we'll be a little safer. There's a few things that have improved, um, but like herd immunity is is uh, not realistic in the next two years on the horizon like there uh a, a, a therapy that has a meaningful effect on the on the comfort level of uh, americans is not likely to be on the horizon in the next two years and the fastest a vaccine's ever been developed is five years uh scientists are going to work miracles and and if it's possible to develop a vaccine they'll develop it way faster uh, i would remind people a lot of stuff vaccine never works like we still have to deal with the cold we still have to deal with um uh, 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 measles and other things. Um, the once we develop that vaccine, we've got to distribute seven billion doses, which we've never done before, and we have to hope that one dose is enough to give people long-term immunity. So it just, from a medical standpoint, customers are still going to be at risk in December of 2021. And so the magic question to me is not when the medical uh, risk goes away; it's uh, when people say, hey, you know what, I have to live with this risk and I have to, you know, uh, revert to my my old behaviors or not. So to me, the psychological end is probably more economically relevant than the medical end. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just kind of frame it, there's a lot of schools of theory here. So you have, um, you know, one school would be there's a V-shaped recovery. So just like you've seen the retail sales kind of have a really deep um chasm yeah. and then come it's right almost back. an eye recovery for the retail sales but yeah 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 uh and then the there's a u-shape where we kind of like bounce around the bottom and then come out of it slower uh and then there's a w-shape where we come out of it uh in a v and then in the fall there's a resurgence um, as the cold weather sets in there's a lot of science and you, you probably know more about this than i do that that would indicate that these things tend to kind of spike like the flu does uh, in the winter um so then that would be that w-shape so we we're down, we're up, and then we're down again. Um, that would be super depressing. Um, and then kind of the most popular one, I think, with pundits now is kind of the L. So so you come out of it very, very slowly. You kind of went down deep, and then you kind of come out of it. So it's more of a, a long tail L shape. Um, and this is where I, I kind of am on the V shape of this because to your point, I don't, I don't think it's going to look like the medical side, but mentally, once things have opened up, um, People have just like gone into it whole hog. Uh, it, it almost could be a problem because we're, you know, we're seeing the bars, the younger folks around here are like just totally, they're in that 25% of, yeah. you know, just don't follow any of the processes or procedures. Uh, here in Raleigh, they had to kind of like get pretty stern and now they have a, you have to wear a mask outside all the time policy, but people are just ignoring that too. So, you know, but, but it's going to be interesting to, you know, so, so mentally people are really burned out on the whole shelter in place thing and ready to get back to normal. Um, so there's that. And then I think economically, all these policies are designed, like once this unemployment stuff comes off, you could see the jobless spike very, very quickly because, you know, there's a lot of people that want to hire, a lot of people don't want to work. And I think that's going to fix itself pretty quickly. I think it'll still be, it's not going to go back to pre-COVID levels, but it's going to fix itself largely pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, so I'm a, but you know, Full disclosure, I'm a entrepreneur, so by definition, we have to be kind of like irrationally optimistic to do what we do every day. Yeah. Um, so so put me squarely in the V camp for now. I like it. Uh, and let the record show, I want you to be right. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm rooting for you. Uh, it is interesting. Um, the 
so we we've been consulting with this epidemiologist that wrote this really scary book about there being a a huge coronavirus pandemic in in uh, uh, 2017. He wrote the book in 2017, kind of perfectly predicting all of this. Um, and uh, side note, he's like a W shape recovery is a total possibility. Like he doesn't think a W shape is likely to play out in the U.S. because he's he's like. There's never been a dip <laughs> is his, his point. Like, like behavior has changed, but the cases have continued to like go up. Like the, you could argue the rate has gotten better or worse, but like what people are perceiving as like, uh, you know, we, we had a s- significant abatement and then it might come back. He's like, really? Like we've just been living on an incline and not noticed it. Um, but, uh, that, that antidote aside, my my feeling is that we're going to have a uh, checkmark shaped recovery or a, what some people call the Nike swoosh recovery, um, where uh, it it is going to take longer to recover than it took to fall because we were so abrupt. Um, and but and some parts of the, the economy will recover pretty quickly, while other parts like have a very long lingering effect. Um, and so you you net out to this shape where you you have like a steep down and a more gradual return as opposed to a U would be more more symmetrical um, is is kind of my position. Hundred uh, percent with you. On, like, there's a real dichotomy out there right now. There's a bunch of evidence that people are super conservative and are not going to spend as much, even uh, without the the like government mandated shelter in places. So like in China where, you know, they've been, uh, uh, 99% of retail has been open for two months. Retail still down 20% in Taiwan that never closed retails down 20% and Sweden that never closed retails down 20%. Um, and so those, that means retails down because people are afraid, um, or either of the economy or their health or both. Um, but at the same time, not only are all your bars full, Scott, but uh, Carnival Cruises is 100% booked for August. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, and so you do have this weird behavior where you see some signs that people are being extra conservative and some signs that people are like, you know, just fed up and open. And maybe the answer is, per your point, that they're not the same people. Um, but it it is really interesting and hard to predict that. The two things I like to leave retailers with on, on this recovery is that um, I do believe that stores are not going to return to their pre-COVID levels of foot traffic for two years. Um, in some cases, that'll be consumer fear um, and uh, that they'll try to minimize their trips. And we're seeing this huge trend towards trip consolidation for consumers. They're, they're buying a lot more stuff in fewer visits. Um, in some cases, it will be because there's a legitimate health risk and of, of the store being too densely populated and the store self-regulating its own traffic. Um, and in a bunch of cases, there will be local ordinances um, that will limit the mac- maximum occupancy. So, you know, the easiest mental model is to think of a restaurant. You know, in a lot of places, restaurants are, are just now starting to reopen, but they're only allowed to use one quarter of their tables or one half their tables. Um, and so in the retail world, if you're, nor- if you're uh, let's say, Costco and you have 3,000 customers in your store on a busy Saturday afternoon and now you're only allowed to have 1,500 customers in your store, the only way you can get close to your pre-COVID levels of revenue and comps is you have to sell more stuff to each customer that goes in the store. You have to get the customer in and out of the store faster, right? So instead of focusing on dwell time and instead of having like, unqualified traffic in your store, you only want the best customers in your store and you want them to get in and out quickly so you can open up that slot for the next customer. And most importantly, you have to sell a bunch of the store's inventory to people that never go in the store, which is curbside. And so to me, uh, for the next two years, like the most important play in retail is going to be how you survive this prolonged dip in foot traffic. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I think every retail, you know, there were retailers with systemic advantages there, like, you know, that had leaned into like a target had, you know, heavily leaned in a curbside or a Walmart before COVID. And so again, you know, they have a huge advantage versus a a dollar general, um, which, you know, ordinarily you'd think would be really advantaged in a recession, but, you know, they, they don't have near the digital chops or the curbside pickup chops that a Walmart has. Um, 
So that that is, you know, what those, are the top questions client ask you after you you've yeah that's all great Jason punched but, them in the nose with this yeah terrible news yeah uh, <laughs> well so I mean a couple of things like so uh, so you know they have like which of those trends you know do you feel confident are long term versus short term and why and how do we predict right and so we talk a lot about that scenario planning that we opened the show talking about um, it, a tactical question that customers are still really concerned about with right now is holiday. Right. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, I don't have a great answer. Um, it's a very difficult holiday per, to plan for, like for all the reasons we just talked about, like, I don't think customer demand is going to be at pre COVID levels. Like I, I think it's better than it's, it'll be much better than it was in, in uh, April when everything was closed. Um, but I think it's going to be a challenging holiday. Like I think a lot of the occasions that drive purchases around holiday are still not going to be happening at the same rate. So that's going to be a challenge. Um, but like how consumers respond, like if they, if they just all decide that they're just fed up with all this and they want to celebrate Christmas, how they always have, um, you know, maybe it ends up being an unexpectedly good holiday, right? Uh, it's it's really challenging. And then layer into that, uh, what the heck is Amazon going to do? Like Prime Day is now in October. Yeah. Um, and so is that going to kick off holiday early? And is is Amazon just going to like run holiday from October through December? Um, you know, a bunch of retailers tend to try to lean into Singles Day in November. Does that kick off holiday? Um, you know, the uh, it's it's really tricky. Our our kids going to go trick or treating. Um, and so, you know, you end up doing these scenario planning, right? And if you're a candy manufacturer, like, you know, maybe you ought to be selling variety packs for families to, you know, in lieu of the candy they normally would have collected, uh, going out, uh, trick or treating or things like that. You have to start thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like Amazon's run scenario planning and they're like, Hmm, if this is a W we should run prime day before the holiday in case it's stinky and, get, you know, kind of get, go, get the win early. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're running up on time, Scott, but I do like an interesting question. Like, so it, it, it's totally obvious to me why they didn't do prime day, like in summer, right? Like, um, they had this huge supply chain disruption and, and consumer spending's down. Right. So it didn't feel like the right time. Um, October was kind of a weird place to land. And one, um, theory i i have heard about october is because um like does that potentially coincide with some new product launches from amazon and did they decide that like the next tent pole after summer to lean into for prime day is to support the launch of some new new echo products or new products any what do you think about that yeah i could see that and then um you know they don't really look at competitors, but Apple should have a new phone coming out in that time frame, right? Isn't there a? I, th- I can't. I think it was September, but then I've read it's been pushed back. Yeah, so it would maybe, ordinarily be September, yeah. and there's a lot of rumors that the supply chain's a little disrupted, so that could be later. Um, yeah, there. Uh, there's a lot of theories that this month they're going to announce a dramatic new laptop based on the on their own chips instead of the yeah. Intel chips. Um, mm-hmm. but nobody thinks they're going to ship it right away. So that, that could be shipping in that time frame as well. Yeah. 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 I think that's valid. Um, I think if you think about it, November, so you have kind of singles day out there is kind of another interesting day point, but it feels too late. Um, and you don't want to interfere with Halloween cause that's a good song thing. So I think by kind of pegging it, have they, have we, do we know when in October? Um, I am not no, sure. Hasn't been announced. Uh, in my mind, I think we may have now landed on on dates, and I just don't remember what they are. I want to say ten ten. There was some symmetry to it, if I recall. Uh, that that's an ironic uh, pivot from from uh, from Singles Day, then, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, you yeah. have eleven eleven. Well, we have ten ten. Yeah, that would be smart. Yeah. Uh, also, a very popular radio station in New York. Um, the <laughs> uh, yeah. So we'll we'll see. I think it'll be. I think it'll be clever. Gotcha. For all our listeners, radio is a way people used to get sound before podcasts existed. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, so let's say you're one of these folks that have really, you know, this has been a huge win for you, the pandemic. What are you going to do next year when you, when you have to lap this thing? You know, that's going to be the comps next year are going to be 
huge for some people that were the most negatively impacted and then hard to comp for those that have been most positively impacted. Yeah. What do you, what do you say to those folks? I, well, so I, uh, we, I brought this up with Mark when he was on the show a couple of weeks ago. I actually think it's a get out of jail free card for most retailers on comps. Like I think that, you know, retailers that had a struggle here, like are gonna, um, you know, have a ridiculous, high comp and people aren't gonna give them credit for it. And, uh, Retailers that had an unexpected boom here are going to, you know, really struggle to comp and people aren't going to completely penalize them for it. So I think there's a lot of smart CEOs um, that have like, you know, painful course corrections and and, uh, austerity measures and things that they've they've like probably known that they should put in place, but were, you know, difficult to do it in a quarter to quarter investor environment. And I think now is their window of opportunity to do it. I actually think that's why... Another reason a bunch of reasonably healthy retailers will close stores, uh, underperforming stores, because, uh, like it's it's gonna you know they they have this semi get out of jail free card. Mm. Yeah, do you buy that at all? Well, I think if you believe it, you should put it in your annual prediction show. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. We'll have a well that'll make us follow it closer. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, Scott, we've uh, used a little bit more than our allotted time, so we should probably leave it here. But as always, if folks want to uh, continue the conversation on Twitter or Facebook, we'd certainly love that. As always, jump on uh, iTunes and finally give us that five-star review. Uh, but we sure appreciate everyone's attention. And uh, despite the fact that there's some negative predictions in this, uh, I'm wishing everyone uh, nothing but the best, and I hope all of uh, uh, Scott's uh, wild optimism comes true. Well, thanks for sharing this uh, super secret client briefing with uh, the world, and may all your pandemic recoveries be V-shaped. Exactly. And until next time, happy conversing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.